Welcome back, everybody, out there in Italian America. We are really honored to have you back here listening to us uh, today in what is the second part of our great Italian-American history lesson. I hope uh, everybody out there enjoyed part one that we sent you last time, and we hope you're back for more because you loved it so much. I'm John Viola. I am your co-host. Back here today with our official professorial panel. These will be the co-hosts for all of our shows on history. They're actually pantomiming to each other <laughs> in front of me, arguing, or I think they either are arguing or they want me to let them go eat. But we all know Dolores is here, and we all know Pat is back. Let's be honest. We're trying to get coffee. We're trying to figure out. Go, we have iced coffee in the fridge. Go get iced coffee. We want iced coffee. We were pantomiming espresso. Did we have an espresso machine? What was I saying? No. Did I? Did you read me right? Yeah, a little coffee, a little something. A little something, yeah. A do you want me to? Do you want me to release you? No, if I release okay. you, we got to come back here and do this over. No, no, no. Because once we go eat, forget it. Can we it's bring over. a little napoli on pot in, in the future? Yes, and bring a hot plate and a pot. I'll be thrilled. Hot plate. Well, La yeah. Hot plate de nita. Yeah, we need one right here on the hot plate. We need like espresso and a little snack. Rosella's not here today. Usually, Rosella brings some kind of snack for us. We have the frozen mushrooms you brought. Yeah, frozen mushrooms. We can heat those up, but. Cafe. We're dedicated to the show, yes, and we want to be, and we want to be here to put out great content. They'll so, <laughs> I'm I'm come on, dying. everybody needs to send Pat a comment on his uh, social media. Yo, I am. No, uh, no, yes, please, please send, send Pat a, please a direct message I, I on his you, social you media to me. tell him that you like listening to the show, <laughs> and he needs to understand how much you appreciate it. And then I have to edit him. Who comes? Why do? Why do you listen to us? Oh, here we go. He's sabotaging this one. All I want is a cup of coffee. Am I asking for a lot? Do you want me to get you iced coffee? No. I mean, it's I mean, there's nothing I can do to get an espresso right now. So I think before our audience turns off the podcast, we should start talking about what we came here to talk about, which today means the second part in our Italian-American history series. And we hope you all enjoyed the first part that covered the era from 1492 until um, about 1889 and the earliest Italians here in the country. And Today we're going to get into the meat of it, really the beginnings of the mass migration that creates our community. And so today's episode we call Italians in America, 1890 to 1941. And this is some great history to cover, so really glad to have uh, the same team back to get into this. Like we did last time, I think it's really good to start with a little bit of statistics to sort of set the stage for this era, because as we discussed in the last episode, this is really the birth of the Italian-American community. Interesting fact, from, from 1880 to 1915, they estimate that 13 million Italians migrated out of Italy, which basically made that the largest voluntary immigration in world history. Four million came here. So Brazil, Argentina, Canada, so many parts of the world took this diaspora in. But our, our community is born basically in the beginning out of those four million-ish that came here in those years. And so 1890 is sort of like the peak of the Great Migration. Four million Italians arrive here. You know, we talked about last time, about half of those ended up going back. But this is when we start to sort of 
arrive on the scene in great numbers and primarily at uh, 85 to 87 percent of that immigration in our community today uh, from the south of Italy. So if you want to go back in the archive. Do you know what really drives that home? The graphs on population in towns and how those numbers just plummet. No, half the, half the south. So someone told me something like 500 people left one town in Calabria in the 1950s. And they, it was a mass immigration. They all went to the United States. They all had like visas together like after the war. Like, can you imagine a town of like 4,000, 5,000 people, 500 people? He said, we all left on the same day. I mean, I don't know if they the got same. discounted. Oh, I'm not trying to joke about it, but yeah. they all the left. The mass exodus rate. <laughs> and I said, you know what I said to him? I said, well, it must have been so hard. We must have been crying. But he goes, no, we were so excited. Wow. And I think that they all left in the 50s and 60s, and I think that they were so tired of the deprivation of the post-war era that America, Canada, that was a very exciting I mean, that excitement... To go. He's jumping to the next episode, though, 50s and 60s. But, you, but you're, you're talking about the excitement of leaving, and that's, that's a, an interesting sentiment no matter what era, because it's at this time, it's the post-Civil War United States, so you've, you've seen a population decrease. A lot of people who would have otherwise been employed in the booming factories and industrial sector. Uh, America needs immigrants. And so it's not just our community that comes here in the largest numbers in those years. It's, it's Poles and it's Jews and, and, and even more Irish. You know, th- this is the immigrant period in American history as well. And we are clearly uh, a large and in some sense, I think, intimidating segment that comes over because we are sort of, you know, the most foreign, you know, not the Irish who spoke the language, um, not Protestants. So we are extremely foreign as we come over. And again, it's mostly Southern. So even more so sort of outside the wheelhouse of popular American culture. But we begin to come in these in these numbers and obviously safe to say settle in primarily the Eastern Seaboard and these these uh, industrial cities that are yearning for a labor, a cheap labor force, but people often forget that we, we also come to other parts of the country. I mean, it's at these this this period and a little bit earlier even that you get huge Sicilian immigration into New Orleans to farm sugarcane, and that community is born there. You get immigration out west to California, Sicilians, Genovese, fishermen, San Francisco, uh, railroad workers, yeah, and and places that people don't think. You know, the, the coal mining towns in, in what's now the Rust Belt, towns in places like Loretto, Pennsylvania. Yeah, like Virginia where Adriana Trigiani grew up. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You're, you're talking about like, you know, towns in North Carolina. There's a place called Tontytown, Arkansas or Valdezi, North Carolina. These areas... Montana. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, West Virginia. We're kind of everywhere. Yes, the story primarily told is like sort of the eastern seaboard in San Francisco, but we are everywhere yeah. at this point. And in places you don't expect. And one of the things we we want to do, I mean, the Midwest and Chicago and St. Louis, you know, we, we want to dig into these communities, each in their own sort of unique episode and tell their story and tell uh, the story of what's there today. But to set the table, here we come in these gigantic numbers and we are strikingly foreign to the majority of Americans. And I think the area that we brush up first and foremost is in the Catholic Church. Uh, against the Irish that that have been there for so long. You know, our relation to the Irish, which is super important to our psychology as a people because it's the Irish church, they're the first Catholics, they're the last wave of huge immigrants. You know, we're so seen as competition 
for work by the end, and really a threat, right? Because we do not understand the language. We do work cheaper. We're so much a threat to their place at the bottom of the totem pole. I am the one most uniquely qualified person on the face of the earth to address this conversation. This is the moment you've been waiting for all our episodes. No, because I said, like, I'm, I'm, <laughs> right. I'm, you are. I'm Irish your thing. My father was your... born and raised in the west of Ireland. It was a clashing of two. The Catholicism was different. Yeah. The Catholic, it's two different religions. Um, Ireland was not as Catholic as it was considered until after the famine. I don't want to say put the fear of God in people, but a lot of Ireland's Catholic participation kind of skyrockets after the famine. Catholicism in Ireland was limited before, you know, kind of the latter half of the 18th century because because priests were so uh, few and far between. So you didn't have a normal church like you did in the south of Italy where there was more priests than they knew what to do with. Catholic churches could not look like churches. They had to look like normal buildings. They had to blend into the streetscape. They couldn't have church bells. They couldn't you have church steeples. They were not allowed to set up dioceses. They had uh, apostolic vicarates in Ireland. Which runs completely counter to Hello, the Southern right. Italian. Like, Southern Italy is at the heart of the Counter-Reformation and this, like, reaffirmation of Catholic culture and sacramental culture. Oh, right. So the, the Counter-Reformation broke Spanish Jesuits just explodes in Italy and Naples, correct. And, like, we talk about it in a lot of episodes, and I think we'll do a whole episode on it. The feast and the patron saint and the mutual aid societies built around them, they are everything for these people because... Obviously, at this point, America doesn't have a welfare system to rely on. These people are in dangerous work. There's a high mortality rate. Something like 90% of the city jobs in, in like, 1890 in New York are occupied by Italian immigrants. So you're talking about a lot of construction, a lot of really physical labor that's dangerous. So these guys, many of whom are here on their own without families, they join together in these mutual aid societies based around their feasts and their hometown. And they're also their insurance. You know, they pay in every month. If you die, you get a burial. If you do have a family here and, and your wife is widowed and your kids are orphaned, uh, the society does what they can to take care of them. I mean, so many of these groups that are still around today, the Italian Welfare League, was started for immigrant services. So they're the secular. Of America. Yeah, these are groups that are the secular versions of these saint societies. So the saint and the feast is... It's the whole soul of the Italian community. It's the soul of the it's community. Like, it's like, I don't, I don't uh, it's like, you know, I'm from New York, I'm a Yankees fan. Yeah. You know, I'm from Pittsburgh, I'm a still, it's like the, the patron saint is kind of like the, 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 the professional sports team, like they, they're, they're rooting for the saint, you know. Which is why taking it out of the basement, and again, we're going to get to the, the episode on the, the sort of work cited behind these, this history. To me, one of the best books ever written is Orsi's Madonna on 15th Street. Yeah, that's right. great. I know that he, he came and did an episode of the podcast a while back, mm-hmm. and it's in the archives, and you should definitely listen to it. But, you know, the idea that the saint comes out of the basement is a huge part of our version of Catholicism and our general identity in this country. So basically, that's, you can sum all that up by saying something that they say in that great series, The Italian Americans, I forget who says it, which is, is basically that the Irish were people of the book and the Italians were people of the senses, you know, they had to see and taste and hear. And largely that's a result of the fact that there was such a high illiteracy rate in Southern Italy and even among the, those immigrants who came here. So they weren't people of the book because they weren't reading. And so they needed to worship in a way that was visceral. 
yeah. and tangible. This is definitional to who we are, and I think a great episode in the future, our relation to our saints. Yes, for sure. I think the Irish is horrific. And no one on Ireland knows about that today. Any of the Irish abuse, they just wrap it off. They just think that they're the most welcoming people and they were welcoming the immigrants. And you tell people stuff went on, they go, oh, no, sure, it couldn't have happened. They kind of write it off. But I think that the Irish mentality was always a fear of the loss of resources. Uh, it's a culture where if you if we don't, all don't cooperate, we're going to starve. So if I have a loaf of bread and you have none, I'm going to cut it in half and give one half to your family. And we might go hungry tonight. But I know that if I need a half a loaf of bread tomorrow, you're going to give it to me. We're going to be very good team players in row together. When the Italians initially came, yeah, there was fear. But I think that the initial Irish reaction was they are co-religionists. And because we are all Catholic, the enemy is the Protestant wasp. And we will all row together. And I think that the Italian mentality, Italians never never saw religious prejudice. I think that the biggest difference between Irish immigration and Italian early immigration is no one came from Ireland and never had a thought of going back. Yeah. Completely was not even acceptable. There was nothing to go back for because the, the land, especially in the west of Ireland, was so hard to till and to work. The mentality and the English were so oppressive. It was, I'm so lucky I got out. Let me get everybody else out. So the Irish mentality was, I have to make the best I can out of America. So much of the Italian immigrant mentality was, I need to make a little bit of money to go home and live well. Which is an interesting point that people miss. And one of the broad strokes that I want us to talk about in this series, and we're getting to the point in the history of these quotas that were legislated uh, against us. But what people often don't understand is the earliest Italian immigrants before the quotas uh, and the and the immigration law changed in the twenties. Forty nine percent of the people that came here from Italy went back. That's a, that's a staggering uh, idea to this community because it was not a streets are paved with gold and I need to get out of Italy. That is a total myth. If half the people went back, they came here for the opportunity. Italy was a difficult place to make a living, and there was a lot of social and economic problems. But the idea was not to sort of come jump in the melting pot and come out blonde-haired and blue-eyed Americans. The idea was to do what you needed to do for your family. That's why so many single men came without their families, because the idea was they were birds of passage. I mean, that, that was what they were called. They were going to come here, work, build up enough to go back and, and lead a better life. If you even look at so many Italian parishes, did not have schools. And if you – I've done some reading on why, why were Italian parishes so late into getting parochial schools is because a lot of the Italian mentality was we're never going to be in that social class because education really was tied to social class. So in the south of Italy, it was so drummed into people that if you're born a peasant, you stay a peasant. If you're born a, a signora, you stay a signora. Why am I going to give my kid an education? Because we can have a really big business. We can be richer than the signora, but we're never going to be signora. So part of it was what are they going to do with an education? We don't belong to that class. You know, We're going to own a business. But part of it was also that if you read some of the stuff that when I'm with the Cabrini was here and the attempt, the establishment of the first parochial schools connected to Italian national parishes, is that, well, why are we going to give our kids an American education? They're only going to go back to Italy anyway. Well, that's a good point. You don't think it, I mean, this is, to me, this is a fundamental part of the Italian American story that just doesn't get covered and, and, and sort of gets glossed over in retrospect. This idea that we sort of all came here to stay here. And, and we clearly didn't. And 
I think the vast majority intended to go back. I think so, too. I really do. I mean, for those of you who may not have listened to us before, um, I got a huge collection, one that I'm very proud of, that I think is amongst the biggest in the country of the material history of the Italian-American experience. And one of the pieces that I prize the most is this collection of letters from the consulate in Boston where these Italians were writing to Italy for help to get their families over because they had been going back and forth so much before the immigration laws changed. And now here they were and they couldn't go back because if they did, they wouldn't be allowed back in the country. And they're writing to have their families brought over and sort of applying for their families to be able to come over here because it was sort of like a Berlin Wall psychologically. It it sort of went up overnight and redefined how we saw ourselves in this country. And uh, it's something that we're going to get into a little bit later in this episode uh, and, and those changes of laws and, and frankly how they might mirror some of the policy discussions that we're having on a national level today. But in staying with our kind of loose chronology here, you know, we're talking about a group of immigrants that arrives and something as familiar and uh, sacrosanct as the the church is not necessarily a safe environment. So they, as Pat points out, sort of hunker down into these very insular national parishes And that insularity is a trend that we take into all realms of American life. You come here facing a hostile American society, and that lack of trust is difficult to escape. So we find ourselves here in significant numbers really looked at as a threat to American society. And in the post-1890 era, there's a real and institutional and significant anti-Italianism that makes its way through American popular culture. And I think people often forget that what's been called the largest mass lynching in U.S. history is of 11 Sicilian Americans in New Orleans. And I don't really want to go too deep into this because it's a topic we're going to cover in its own show. But, uh, you know, you have a city with a large Sicilian American community, not well integrated, sort of isolated, a general population who is suspicious of these newcomers and their insular ways. And uh, one night, the police chief, Hennessy, is murdered and with his dying breath says it was the Dagos, essentially. A bunch of Sicilians are rounded up. They're put in jail. They go to trial and they're acquitted. And it shocks the entire city. And so a gang of Amerigans from New Orleans, I guess you'd say, decide to get together and then sort of an act of vendetta justice, they break into the jail, rip 11 of these guys out of there and uh, lynch them all at once. I mean, this caused like a huge diplomatic row between the new nation of Italy and the United States to the point where the Italian government actually recalled its ambassador to the United States. I mean, this was a a huge diplomatic situation, at least uh, on the scale of Italian-U.S. relations. And a weird tidbit of history, you know, the the, the controversial Columbus Monument, which uh, I think Dolores, you and the governor and uh, all of your cohort up in Albany can take credit for, for saving for posterity uh, only a couple of weeks ago. It's now a, a national, uh, it's, it's now a state. state historical registry and it's on its way to be being on the national historic registry. And this spire in Columbus Circle that everybody's created so much controversy around these past few years, people think it's this ode to Columbus, but it was built by the Italian community, paid for by the Italian community in New York in reaction to this lynching in New Orleans and this this sense 
of complete defense of of who we are and, and what we're doing in this country. And, and it's not just New Orleans. You know, th- there's lynchings in uh, Mississippi and other states. I mean, you know, th- this anti-Italianism is, is pervasive, and it we was are. Racial. I mean, new, it's all racial. Americans were not considered what. No. The New Orleans one is still considered the largest mass lynching in American history. There's some Chinese American group that's claiming there's more Chinese lynched in, in some episode that I, I don't know about. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. But I think you can pause on the Columbus statue as a ex- perfect example of what happens when you don't know your history. Yeah. And when you don't teach your history and when you don't talk about it and when it's not taught in schools i didn't learn that in school that story did you learn that no did you no. learn about the columbus statue and why it's there no exactly so you had a very terrific uh, a couple years was it last year or a couple years ago op-ed in the last new york year. times last year uh titled tearing down statues of columbus also tears down my history and the whole point in that is this is this is the hub right so you i always see columbus day and the argument for columbus day and Colum- the, the statue that, as separate. I know a lot of Italians, a lot of groups see them as together, but they're really distinct. And the statue is really, I mean, you nailed it in that op-ed, it's really our history. Yeah. And it starts with this lynching, and it starts with a marginalized, scared, ridiculed community that then has this happen. And the founder of Il Progresso said, you know what, we're going to show this country how much we love it and how much it means to us that even though you're lynching us, discriminating against us, we know you've given us a future and we're going to show you we're really Americans. So he starts this campaign and he raises money from regular Italian-Americans, right? The bakers, the masons, the restaurant owners, the barbers little bit here and there. These working people donate to this cause and they raise enough money to create that statue and then erect it in Columbus Circle in New York City. And I think when that happened, there was like over 100,000 Italian-Americans there yeah. present for that. So so that's what's happening with that statue. Yeah, And it's it's a slight to our community in the sense of our history is embedded in that and no one but us seems to care. Yeah. No, it, it, <laughs> it doesn't factor at all into the national debate about Columbus as a figure in the United States history, as a figure for all ethnic groups, uh, as a holiday. That statue is a piece of our history. Mm-hmm. And and it is, you know, I could see where people relate it, obviously, because it's a persona. It's a statue of Columbus. But it's the whole point of why we're doing these we're shows. Respect, I mean, I, I don't want to keep coming up, but we're not respected by... Mainstream American culture. Yeah, because we don't know our own history. But we were constantly portrayed in negative connotations in mass media. But, I mean, it it speaks to what this era is about, right? So the statue goes up, this lynching, the diplomatic break. Keep in mind, you know, we glorify Little Lilies today and we want to preserve them. But Little Lilies were born out of necessity. At this point, people were living in community because they needed to survive together they needed a safe zone. It, it, there's a ghettoization here right, right, that's right. going on in these little Italy's across the country. And now let's talk about something that is related to the lynching and is related to the statue and is related to all of this anti-Italianism and unfortunately tinges our entire history from this point on, which is the birth of the mafia in the United States. I mean, you, you see 
uh, a lot of exploitation of these people living in, in these isolated communities. And an episode of Italian American history that I think is really interesting happens here in New York. And I mean, the Black Hand, people forget, was extorting Italians all over the country, all over the country, kidnappings, bombings of Italian-owned businesses uh, trying to extort. And they were Italians. And they were Italians, Italian, yeah, taking Italian advantage crime. of Italians. But I want to talk about the only reaction to them because the, the, the police force here in New York, which was primarily Irish, had very little understanding of even how to approach this. Right. And it's really Joe Petrosino, uh, an, an Italian immigrant from Padula outside of Naples, who comes in and begs for resources to create the Italian squad on the police force and is the first to really address this. His lieutenant. Yeah, Lieutenant mm-hmm. Petrosino, and really take them on. He gets murdered in Palermo yep. for, for his success, and it's one of the largest mass funerals in the United States history at that point. And he's one of the first to sort of crack that wall between our community and the greater American society and say, look, you know, this is not who we are. We're not all criminal brigands. And Petrosino doesn't get much play in history anymore. Right, you hear a lot about the mob. You don't hear much about Lieutenant Petrosino. The old word, mafia is a new word. The old word was mananay. Yeah, If you talk to anyone, I'd say my grandmother's generation back, they grew up with the word mananera as yeah. their word for the mafia. Mafia became a later... Like media construction almost. I mean, yeah. I don't know where it came from. That's, but I don't that's, what, I've, that's yeah. what I've read, yeah. I come from fruit and vegetable sellers on both sides. Both of my mother's grandfathers were in the fruit and vegetable business. And my mother's paternal grandfather had a fruit and vegetable business in Jersey City. And he would go in the morning, every morning at 4 o'clock, and take a horse and wagon to take the ferry across to Manhattan. And on his way home, the uh, horse and wagon was hijacked. And my great-grandfather's brother worked with him at the store. And somebody ran up to the house and said to his brother, you better go down to town. Your brother's crying. Um, the Mananeda hijacked the, the fruit, uh, fruit and vegetable truck. And my uncle goes to Brooklyn, where their other brother was, their brother Pascal was, and he knew someone who we would use the mountain word connected. And I think it was the next day, the truck shows up back in front of the store from the uncle, from whatever favor my uncle was able to get. But this was a real presence in the Italian American community. And and a real psychological ball and chain. I mean, people don't appreciate how fearful these immigrants were. They couldn't go to the police. They couldn't speak the language. They couldn't engage the U.S. system. They felt foreign to it. There was no internal system of policing. This was a sort of, again, that, that Italian-American put-your-head-down-and-work culture. And you had to turn to somebody who was, you know, quote-unquote connected to even get a response. And so Petrosino really has a hard time convincing the Italians to even report these things. His earliest career is is begging the community to sort of give him leads to where to go. I mean, you're, you're talking about a culture here that is very secretive, very insular, very fearful. We don't have the institutions to even come together and address this. You know, people are living in enclaves of their own towns. The Sicilians aren't talking to the Genovese on the next street. I mean, this is all a very fractured and unsafe society. And the, the the next point that I want to bring up is a piece that I think is un, underappreciated Italian-American history and, and a gentleman who I think deserves a lot of credit 
is Dr. Vincenzo Solaro and the 1905 founding of the Sons of Italy, right? People today look at the Sons of Italy as a sort of a, a fun fraternal group with lodges and, you know, and uh, obviously... Dinner dances. And dinner dances and, and, <laughs> and good ones all over the country. Everybody, I think our listeners by now know that I spent the six, past six years working at the National Italian American Foundation. NIAF only comes into being in 1975. In 1905, Sons totally of Italy... Different totally different reasons. Totally different reasons. Sons of Italy, at that point, has millions of members, and it's still one of the largest groups in the country. But in Solaro's speech, which I highly recommend you go out on the Osaya website, Osaya's Order Sons of Italy in America, for those who aren't familiar, go read his speech. He talks about this. He talks about the fact that if we're in, inward-looking and afraid and disunified, we're never going to thrive. And he sort of points out, like, this first meeting in 1905 on Mulberry Street, there's people from Piedmont, there's people from Genova, there's people from Venice, there's people from Campania, Sicily, Calabria, fill in the blanks. They have to come together. And he starts to create this idea, and Sons of Italy does a good job of creating this idea of, of an Italian nationality. And I think it's underappreciated. And right, I it's wanna... not like Sons of uh, your small town in Calabria. It's exactly. Sons of Italy, it's all a, of us. Yeah. I mean, this is a little bit jumping ahead, but I just want to point out to listeners and to us here that that mentality really continues, though, for decades. Because even into you know the, the 50s and 60s, we were kind of still behind, quote-unquote, in our successes and integration because uh, we were still being very insular and we were still being staying where we were safe in our communities. Well, that'll come even in our next episode into the 60s and 70s. I right. mean, some great writing as late as like 71. Yeah, short. that we like don't, we're not, we're not moving out. And, yeah. and, it, and, it's a, and it's a trend and that's part of this larger story. You're starting to see success stories. And, you know, these episodes are not about covering, like we say, the highlights and the luminaries, but like, you know, this is the era that you're getting AP Giannini and the foundation of the Bank of Italy, which becomes the Bank of America in San Francisco and creates retail banking, branch banking. Uh, You're starting to see Italians become entrepreneurs in the American consumer market. Giardelli chocolates, Planters Peanuts, Tropicana, Progresso, Contadina, Chef Boyardee, all these brands that we still have, and we've talked about in one of our prior episodes, we're starting to build here. We're starting to build a successful community, or the beginnings of a successful community. In this post-1890 period. Yeah, and in the, in the early 1900s, and it leads to the beginnings of our coming out of our shell, an episode in history that is really important to our story that, again, I don't think gets much coverage, is World War I, because here we are, the U.S. joins the war in 1917, our community at this point is is established, is large. World War One is the first time that, because of the war, because Italy's in the war from 1915, you see a real break in the ability of these birds of passage to go back and forth. So people are kind of stuck here by default. So Italy's fighting on the side of the Allies, which we eventually come in on. And now these Italian-Americans who for so long have been kind of silently here, if not silently here, not wanted in all cases, now they represent an Allied country and they have this great cause in common right. and a huge portion of they have an in into american yeah, society yeah we have we have a commonality a little window and and the interesting thing is like in the two years that we were at war the u.s 1917-1918 italian servicemen in the, in the american forces actually represent like a disproportionately higher i think i think we made up 12 percent of the total of american forces which is totally disproportionate to our place here so it's the first time you see a lot of like, you know, I talk about my collection a lot, 
these posters of an Italian soldier and American soldier or right. Italia Turita and Colombia, the, the female personifications of the country sort of arm in arm going forth together or Wilson and, and Victor Emmanuel III, the king of Italy at the time. Here we start to get a fresh look, I think, and that's really definitional in the, in the period of the First World War. Unfortunately, what happens at the end of that, because so many Europeans now are, are migrating again from war-torn Europe, you get the Johnson-Reed Act in 1924, and that Immigration Act is the first one Calvin Coolidge signs. It puts the first to ever put quotas on groups, and the group that was most highly legislated against is Southern Italians and Southern Europeans. So this is where we really see the break in that flow of passage. I often wonder, had that not happened, all the Italians who went to Canada and Australia after the war probably would have come here. I would imagine, yeah. So the Italian presence in America would have been even stronger than what it is now. <laughs> so they, so Coolidge and those guys got what they wanted. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Because all those... Toronto would not have the Italian population that it has. And because when did Toronto's Italian population take off? As soon as that Johnson Reed Act went through. Yeah. And, and, uh, even through the Second World War. I mean, this sure. these laws didn't change until I mean, the 60s. Montreal, yes, and I know there's some Canadian out there who's going to... Montreal always had an Italian population probably at the same time that New York had theirs, right? And there was even, you know, uh, Salonard, and there was always a strong Italian population in Montreal. But had the U.S. not had such strong uh, blocks on Italians coming here, it probably it probably would have written a whole different story for us. This legislation, to me, is the game, one of the major game changers in who we are as a people. Because like you say, 100%. we would be a much bigger population. Look at the diaspora around the world. We have a much bigger population, and Australia, you know, the Pasquale Parmigianos of, would never probably have come to exist because it wouldn't have gone there. Yeah. You know, the Joe Avadis and the Alfios and all would have been people living in New York and New Jersey. Yeah, it's amazing to think about. You know, we didn't talk about what's always seen as a pillar in Italian-American history, and I don't want to talk about it because it's its, its own episode. 1920 and 21 is the Sacco and Vanzetti a case and, and, an and execution, and it's an episode all to itself. But you know, it's interesting that during the war, before and during the First World War, you have this Italian American anarchist movement, radicalist movement. Yeah. I have a little bit of a problem with this story. This, this, Sacco Yeah, I do too. I mean, I have an interesting anecdote about Sacco and Vanzetti. Yeah. What do you think the concern of the diocese of Archbishop, I guess Cardinal Archbishop, I'm not sure, I think it was Cardinal Archbishop Connell, of, uh, Con yeah, I think it was Connell, Connell Connolly, um, insert Irish name here, insert Irish name in <laughs> Boston, what do you think their big concern was? If they, that there was, they had heard that they were gonna, that the spouse, one of the spouses was going to cremate, <laughs> and that was, I mean, a, a Catholic world at that time where cremation was completely, absolutely unacceptable, under, unless you had a plague in the town, which is the actual rule on it, um, he drove to, I guess, wherever the execution said, wherever they were, and he approached one of the wives and said, please, I'm begging you, like, you go to the public, please don't come out on the heart. We were clearly a concern for them. But that was an Irish, that's an Irish thing. How is it going to look? It's an anti-Catholic right. move. And her response was, you come to me now, where, where were you all the time when we needed you? But, but, let's, 
let's be honest, sacrament events, Eddie, were not sympathetic to, to the church. No. Or to the Irish church. Or to American, you know, ideals. I, I think that I have a hard time with this, with this case being a flag for Italian American injustice. I agree with you. Do you? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Totally. Really? Yeah. That was agree. almost yeah. like scary. No, no, to say. we're all afraid to say. Because, yeah, we are. Yeah, because, you. Are. Because, no, because, <laughs> because a certain political predisposition of academia turned them into martyrs. Yeah, and I so, don't think they are. Can John, can you give us a very quick summation of what happened with Sacco and Vanzetti before we get into that? Essentially, they are part of a very large Italian-American anarchist movement in the country. In 1920, there is an armed robbery at a shoe factory in Braintree, Massachusetts, and a security guard and uh, another employee are killed. One of them, I can't remember which one, is actually Italian-American. They're rounded up as the prime suspects. Sacco and Vanzetti, they are charged with first-degree murder of these two guys. They are given a trial that the major portion of the population... Which wasn't a fair trial. Thinks is unfair. Yeah, it wasn't a fair we trial. Rather granted them yep. 100% they did not receive a fair trial. And they trial. are given the death penalty. And very early on in the process, they are seen... For, it's a, first of all, it's, a, it's a, one of the early American media sensations. And right? they're singled out because they're Italian and they're anarchists and there's this growing and an often violent Italianism. Italian anarchist movement happening yeah. in America. Yes, yeah. And to be fair, even though I think we all are on the same page, these are not upstanding citizens, they may not have committed these crimes. I mean, there was a huge appeals process, a lot of recanted evidence and testimony, conflicting ballistics, like some of the, uh, I think the jury foreman sort of came out even before the trial with uh, his opinion of their guilt. Uh, There was even statements from another guy who was alleged to have been part of this conspiracy and the robbery and, and what ended up being murder. And still these guys lose all the appeals and are sentenced to electric chair. And so they become a cause celeb all over the country. And don't forget, you have the Italian contributions to the labor movement at Lawrence, Massachusetts. Uh, you have the triangle, um, uh, shirtwaist. shirtwaist factory fire. And you know, we were always present in this very progressive That's true. labor movement. So it, so it's a cause. But, but, but if I could just jump in to follow what, what, what Dolores had said, is, and you, you, you teased this out, John, is that there was a anti-clerical, anarchist, there's a lot of those um, elements in the Italian community which we never, you know, and I call it the, um, the sanitized Italian-American history, in a lot of sense, it doesn't talk about the modern it doesn't talk about mm. Italians persecuting Italians, it doesn't talk about Padron, it doesn't talk right. about the anarchism, right. talk, so I'm saying that a lot of the stuff that was in the community, which was considered reprehensible to American culture, we kind of wax over and we just talk about grandma and grandpa coming to Ellis Island and grandma and working really hard. Yeah. We don't talk in depth about it. And there was a lot of elements of the espousal, the the the, uh, the empathy toward parts of the community toward anarchy. Yeah. You know, um, a priest was assassinated in Denver, Colorado by an Italian anarchist just was an anti-church move. I mean, don't forget that the king of Italy in 1900, Correct. Umberto... Was was assassinated by an Italian American anarchist. Who had been in Patterson, right? Yeah. He was in, he was in yeah. So I think that, yeah, did, did Sacco and Vanzetti did not receive a fair trial to the extent that they were Italians. And yeah, their identity as Italian Americans 
at times was conjoined with their identity as right. Americans, and right. at times it yes. was separate. And I think that that's the problem for me, is like, I actually, like the Sicilian lynching, the New Orleans lynching, most of those guys were just honest business people. Right, they, they were, were just, just going around. about yeah. their day. Place, the yeah, wrong place, place right. wrong time. Right. And the chief says, the Dago shot right. me, and they go out and get anybody. They right. get fruit sellers. Right. These were guys who were active anarchists, right. and I appreciate the fact that the poor execution of the trial, the if there's misjustice to it, whatever, is probably partially because of their Italianness, and, and, and it speaks to the fact that an Italian couldn't get a fair trial. But I don't attach the same sympathy or empathy for these guys because they didn't have good intentions. That's At least so not in my funny. version of America. No, I know, but really, we were all like almost afraid. I was afraid to even say it because it's not popular thinking. The Italian community canonized. Yeah, them. but you know, they were... So let's put it this way. Does the fact that they did not get a fair trial erase the fact that they were anarchists involved in public bombings yeah. and public disorder and you know as as academia as a whole tolerate this conversation. I see. That's why that's why we're not academia. That's why we're not academics. While you're in a host country, you know, well, how much how much leeway is that host country supposed to give you? I know, especially at that time. I actually know a bizarre amount about anarchy during that time. From you know when? My time in academia. Well, yeah. the, the anarchists are though somewhat canonized in academia mm-hmm. in certain aspects mm-hmm. of Italian American yeah. academia. Is the I know a lot artists. about Voltaire and Declare and people like that. It's insane. But that's, I think what it's I that's what my parents paid money for me to learn there about. There you go. That, I don't know. That, that might say a lot about the American educational system. But I mean, I think that that that, that it's an interesting little. I would love to hear. And John and I have and the worst knows as well. A lot of Italian American academics who would have had a a canonization. Well, I think we should. I think we should put a pin in, in uh, Bonanno, Masako, and Vanzetti, and come back for one of the, an episode with some of these academics. You know, bring yeah. them into the power yeah. hour, and you know, let's think, hear it. Think about the 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 maelstrom that's going to happen. What year was Sacco and Vanzetti? 20, 21. 2021. You know, within a few short years, you're going to have an Italian American community that comes out full force for fascism. Yeah, it's amazing, and that uh, it took a real quick. That's int- probably more emblematic of who they really were as a community. That's really fascinating, right? Because okay, you have all the negatives. You have Sacco Vanzetti. You have a lot of positives coming up in the time after nineteen twenties, the mid nineteen twenties. You know, R- Rudolph Valentino in Hollywood and uh, this popular American conception of the Italian as a lover. You have Fiorello LaGuardia coming in into um, his place as. Um, a revolutionary figure, really, in the idea of, of the New York City politics and national politics uh, as an Italian American, and then you know DiMaggio and all these people. Concurrent to the trial is the arrival of fascism in Italy, and fascism in Italy is really going to paint much of the, la- the, the the final topics on this episode because it's not long after fascism arrives in Italy that the fascist regime sees positives and negatives and some opportunity in the Italian communities abroad, right? There's a sort of like a reawakening of this sense of national pride. It's, a, it's obviously, as we all know, a very nationalist movement. And Mussolini and his lead thinkers see these huge populations of downtrodden Italians around the world as a great proving ground and sort of foreign presence for the doctrine of fascism. And it's... Very interesting to see the development, Pat, you know, near you in Jersey City, one of the largest 
of these um, fashion leagues of North America. I mean, you, you get Italian fascism here and black shirts here and a huge that? presence. I, just, I mean, like, we, we've been lecturing a lot, I think, but why did Jersey City have such an espousal of fascism? Yeah, it's a good question. I I don't I they don't had a know. Fascist school in Jersey, Casa Galone. Yeah, I mean, look, fascist school. I actually See, know. What's American culture? What is American society at that time supposed to do with this? It's Say it's okay. Question. Go ahead. Yeah, but they were they were iso- Was it? You know what I'm saying? I, I but, think that there's this mentality that I don't know. Like it's almost we're supposed to get a pass for that. Yeah, but here's an interesting but we're piece. We're at war though. with that exactly. But we're not at war yet, though. Here's the interesting piece. All right, 1922 fascism comes into being. The dictatorship kind of starts in 25 when they murder Mediati and they really do away with democracy in Italy and a democratic tradition there. It gets aggressive, let's say, in its outward approach to our communities in the late 20s. Don't forget, in the early days, Mussolini was an international hero. He had he fixed Italy. He prevented communism in Italy, right? There was a real red the scare. Was really sc- and the world was really terrible, uh, terrified. Yeah, after the Russian Revolution, there's, a, there's this terror the classic, of communism. You solve one problem and you create another. And nobody yeah. really saw it as a creative problem yet because think about – people don't appreciate this and you can barely talk about it now because it, it, it's it's crazy to people. But like there's this great song – I forget who wrote it. I forget what play it's from called You're the Top. You know, you're the top, you're the Coliseum. That song, From Anything Goes. Yeah, From Anything Goes, that thank you. my high school senior year <laughs> I would That's love to hear you that. singing that. <laughs> but the original line was, you're the top, you're Mussolini. Oh. I mean, Mussolini, there was Mickey Mouse cartoons of Mussolini. Um, they called him the man of destiny. You know, he, I, I, as a true Italian, he was a great performer. He was a great he performer. Was actor, he was on stage. And, I mean, and, Roosevelt... You know, he, he played the part of dictator to... Don't forget, he was repressing political prisoners... But it wasn't a, a Hitlerite mass murder. There was no anti-Semitism in, in early fascism. In early fascism. In early fascism. Well, the Jew, how many Jews? I mean, the, the, yeah, the Jews were at the, the foundation Jews of fascism. The Ferrara, who yeah. was so supportive of Mussolini, who Absolutely. felt betrayed when the racial laws came in in 38, saying, you know, we, here wow. we were behind you. Yeah. But I mean, and my, now you've, you know. People under, under people don't appreciate, even Franklin Roosevelt sent his son, I believe, to assess and study what Mussolini done right in fascism because it factored into the New Deal. There's this, yes, uh, this I, liberal... I, I, I had an Italian barber in New Jersey who used to constantly say, I have a social security because I was about to study the Mussolini. I mean, say, in a lot of ways, it's true. He always connected his social security check every month with Mussolini. And yeah. he said, you know, he said Mussolini... Exactly because Mussolini had enacted similar measures in Italy? Is that what you're yeah. Uh, yes. This idea of this... I, again, we're not, we're not perfect academics. I'm sure there's somebody out there who could... Who, who no, but I mean, a lot of the New life. Deal is rooted in fascist policy. I think sometimes people don't appreciate that a lot of the aspects of the New Deal have their roots in fascism. Can, can I tell you where I think why fascism did so well here? I'm going to give you an anecdotal story that many years ago, an Italian-American was telling me the story that their paternal family immigrated from Amboino. And they were in America for a very, very long time. And one of the family members, like after 50 years of being here in the early 19th century, gets the money to go back to Italy. So someone who loses an 18-year-old girl goes back to a 68-year-old woman now, a grandmother. And they're all waiting for his aunt. He remembers this. They're all waiting for the aunt to come home. And the aunt comes home and everyone's like, how's everything in the Baez? And the first thing she turns to her brother and says, absolutely nothing has changed. But she said it with disgust because her opinion was, we left Italy, there was no running water, there was no toilets. We went back to Italy, there's no running water, there's no toilets. They saw so much progress in America, mandatory education in America. Their kids were literate. 
Um, there was a tradition. My grandmother's mother always used to go off. We had a store right down the block from a courthouse. It was amazing in America how you could be a, a person of low birth and you could take a person of high birth to trial that you could actually win. She goes, in Italy, that would never happen. And I think that they saw in Mussolini the, uh, the possibility of someone who could like shake up Italy and bring them where they should have been. Yeah. You know, you know, you should be a country just like America in the technological sense. You know, your kids should be going to school. If the Zapadora has a problem with the Gonda who owns the land, he should be able to go to court. And I think that they saw Mussolini's progress as you get him. Yeah. You know, you're dragging you know, Italy into the 20th century. You know, we had to leave Italy and this guy's going to turn around. And that's why I think he had such popularity. Red Mike Campora, who in the, came to America in the late 20s, I knew him. He was maybe 14 when he, I knew him as an elderly man, but he was maybe 14 when he came here in 1929. He started from Abruzzo. He started playing he, in a band, and he remembered the Mussolini fundraising rallies that he would play for. He remembers some of his first gigs was playing in a band up at Villa Walsh for fundraisers for Mussolini. I mean, so, look. It's no coincidence that most of the feast bands still know how to play Giovinezza and Facetta Nera. And, and, and look, let's not take away. I mean, there's a lot of ills in fascism. First and foremost, the fascists engaged here. They built a, an infrastructure. Well, so they sent movies over to the Italian-American community to show yeah, they sp- speeches, English? records. They, they spent a lot of money. We can honestly say Mussolini was the only Italian to show, because we, we were discussing how Italy really has a, a lack of interest in Italian-Americans. Mussolini was the only national leader of Italy who had a real active interest in Italian-Americans. Yeah. And I think because he courted them is one of the reasons why he was so popular. And, he actually paid attention. And he also created the, the idea of an Italian national identity and, and put a lot of money and propaganda into this sense of pride that was never there. And, you know, it's Mussolini who invests a ton in Columbus Day and the, and the cult of Columbus or the explorers or Rome, obviously this idea of a new Rome. And you know, this heritage that people didn't feel attached to. And so, you know, I, I grew up in a house where my grandfather still talked about how great Mussolini was and how he grew up with his portrait in the house and this and that. How many Italian Americans in the 30s, how many people I knew had uncles named Benito? Yeah. Go go to Ernie Rossi's on Grand Street in Italy. His family sold very successfully all of these posters of Mussolini. and belt yeah. buckles. I mean, right. you know, this was a huge part of the identity here and and granted there's fascist there's pro-fascist in the italian-american community there's and there's clearly an anti-fascist movement you know we're all uh recently have gotten involved with the italian sons and daughters in america organization which is a phenomenal group centered really out of the midwest and and growing one of the italian-american groups that's really still growing and the italian sons and daughters split off of the sons of italy in the ni- in 1930 because they felt that fascism had infiltrated the sons of Italy, and, and its messaging was becoming predominant. A lot of the upper echelon of the leadership there was was pro-fascist. So it, the community split. But, I mean, you talk about Italo Balbo. Italo Balbo, the great Italian aviator, in 1933 flies across the Atlantic in this historic flight, comes to the United States, comes to New York, Chicago. A dear friend of mine who would be great on the show, a dear friend of all of ours, is Robert Allegrini, a very active civic leader in the Italian-American community in Chicago. He tells the story of his mother who came over here as an immigrant 
went to the Italian funded the Italian state school here that they had in Chicago, and she remembers her whole school going out and hundreds of thousands of people waiting on the the lake even, for his arrival. There's even the monument um, on Broadway where he had the ticker tape parade. Yeah, I mean that street walker. It's a very complicated history with fashion in the United States, but. Uh, you look at the Ethiopian War and, and race riots between African Americans supporting Ethiopian, Italian Americans supporting the invasion. Newark, New Jersey, by St. Lucy's Church, the first ward, which for at one point was the fifth largest Italian community in the United States in the 1950s, in 1929. I guess that was when we, the war. 38. Was 38? At the war in Ethiopia? 36, excuse me, 36. Is it 36? Yeah, 36. They had an actual parade through the streets of the Italian community. The church bells rung the whole nine yards celebrating the Italian victory in Ethiopia. The guys dressed up in, I guess, Italian military, uh, I guess, who got expe- uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uniform? The, no, the uniforms they wore when they would go over, um, the, the, like, the, Af- the uniforms they would use in North Africa. Col- colonial uniforms? There's, a, there's, yeah. a, there's an actual term yeah. for it, but there they were marching around. And I mean, this this brings us to the conclusion of our show because we want this episode to end at 1941 for a reason. Because I 19... because you've kept us here. For... <laughs> no, not, not because I've kept you here all day <laughs> recording. Just have a cup of coffee. There was no coffee. But we're about <laughs> not coffee, not a cookie. But in our not sto- a piece of cheese. <laughs> I know. Right? I am a fascist this when it comes. Yeah. Called a limited attack program. <laughs> Nothing to eat, no sparkling water, all flat water. I blew it today. I'm actually impressed at your fascism today. That he he was not budging. I'm getting tougher as the moderator. Yeah, no matter how much we teased him. I'm Mussolini. They're begging me to eat. I mean, I'll survive. It's just, it's like, it's principle at this point. But to set up the next show, (laughs) now you have this country where this huge population of Italian Americans, many of whom are identifying with fascism, this guy who was up until the invasion of Ethiopia still very popular to the rest of the world, and after the invasion of Ethiopia starts to, because of all the sanctions, turn to Hitler build this, this this Axis alliance and really become a rogue on the international stage. And in the next episode, we're going to go into, in depth, our communi- how that affected our community, our treatment during the war, our participation in the war, and where we come after. So Yeah, that's a really interesting topic. I think it's going to be a good one. one. Yeah, I think it's going to be really fun. Mm-hmm. I hope this has been really fun for everybody out there. And again, as we always say, hit us up on social media. Twitter and Instagram at Italian Power HR. Uh, tell us what you think. Tell us what you've enjoyed. Tell us where these uh, topics might deserve a deeper dive in their own show because there's a lot of good stuff here. Yeah, we love hearing from you. Yeah. So we really we share, especially with the Power Hour. Um, you know, if Anthony or I get a letter, we always share it with the whole group. And if there's a comment, we you know we share it on our group text. So. We're definitely uh, in touch with one another about what the audience is saying. So you guys mean a great deal coming. to us, and this is this is what fuels us to come in and and put this stuff together. And, and I hope hope it's worth it. We go eat now. Yeah. Yes, we, we go eat. We go eat, <laughs> and we'll send you off, and we'll see you next time. You're the top. You're addressed by Patu. You're the top, you're an Epstein statue, you're the nimble trade of the feet of Fred Astaire, you're Mussolini, you're Mrs. Sweeney, you're Camembert, you're the run of a film by Arliss, you're the son 
on the crystal parlor. I'm a lazy lout that's just about to stop. But baby, I'm on a beauty top. You're the top. You're a new invention. You're the top. You're the fourth dimension. You're the green and gold and the mauve of the old school tie. You're the Brothers Western, you're Harry Preston, you're Custard Pie. You're an old by a leading songster. You're a road where there's not a gangster. I'm a frog without a log on which to hop. Irish lipstick By the river Rhine You're the biggest kind of beer You're the first, the fourth The cock of the north You're a stratosphere You're a rose You're an Arno's tangy You're the nose Of the great Durante I'm a son of a gun An underdone chump chump Oh, baby, I'm on a new path.